Jesus. We believe in your name. We believe you died and rose again. And we are all here because of your sacrificial act. We pray that you would, through your spirit, open our hearts and minds to receive from you, that is, whatever you have to say to us as we open your word this morning. And speak through me. Put the focus on you to bring you glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Take a seat, and if the children could rise and come up front. That didn't work, no. And nothing at all. Give him a round of applause. Make him feel more awkward, right? Good, good, good. It's good seeing the, the young ones there, and it reminds me of how old I am and how old I feel right now, too. So, jeez. Well, we're continuing our series on kingdom devotion. Yes, amen to that, that I'm old. 51 years old, not young. Uh, Let's not, let's not start in a down note, shall we? Actually, I want to start with something a little fun. We're going to talk about the, the will of God this morning. And, uh, but I thought I would, would uh, there's a reason to this, but we can also have some fun with this. I want to look at the differences between the male and the female brain specifically. Okay. Yeah, start laughing. Um, and, you know, my own take is how we are, males are brain damaged. I've been over that with you guys before, and those... Wives are saying amen to that. We know that to be true. But um, this is a, a funny take of, of, of kind of the picture of the male brain and the female brain. And um, it's things that are true, things that are funny, things that are stereotypes as well. And so, I, you know, and the point is you'll see a difference and you'll see a, how God has created uh, the male brains. But this is a funny look at this in, in the male and female brain. So here it is. And these are different sections of the, here's the male brain. We'll start off with that, okay? And you see there's large sections, you know, here and here, and we'll fill in some of these, and these very, very small sections, and you're going to get a kick out of this. And so we look at the male brain. The first point we have here is multitasking, okay? You've heard me talk about this and that the male ability to do multiple things at once, we're just not as good at that as females are, okay? And I'll get into that a little bit later, but... Um, a large section of the male brain, though, is, takes up this, right? Sports and hobbies, okay? How many of you women enjoy watching, like, all different kinds of sports or have all different kinds of hobbies? It's what you think about kind of off and on throughout the day. Any, any women? A few of them, but for the most part, no, okay? Now, you'll notice this little small area right up here. It's, um, that is our listening ability, as you can see. How many of us are able to actually listen that well as, as males? I know I don't do well, okay? So we don't, we don't listen well. And if you're married or have been married, you know that, yeah. My wife says I don't listen. I don't know. I don't pay attention to what she's saying. So there we go, all right? Now look at this. That's a little larger than this, right? But we do have the ability to focus on a single task, okay? We can get into that compartment, right? Be oblivious to everything else, but we can accomplish that single task. That's how God has, has wired the, the male brain, right? You guys, this isn't new to you, right? No? Okay. Then this is uh, our attention span. See how small that is? Now, how many women would say that that's a pretty accurate assessment, what we're seeing so far in describing the male brain? Raise your hands. Okay, every woman pretty much is raising their hand. Yeah. Uh, what is that again, attention span? Okay, I wasn't paying attention. So really, really small part of our brain is our ability to, to pay attention, particularly to uh, what? When our wives are talking, right? Got an amen from a lot of the ladies over there. This is our ability to drive manual transmission, okay? It's a bigger part for the male. It's a big thing, okay? 
It's a big thing in our household, too. The males want to learn to drive a manual transmission, and my daughter Lydia has absolutely no desire to do that at all. Okay, and I keep telling my sons, you don't want to drive manual transmission here. Well, why? The hills and the traffic, and you're constantly doing this, constantly doing this. Do they listen to me? What do you think? No. See, all goes back to here, right? They don't listen, okay, or they weren't paying attention to what I was saying, okay? This is the avoid personal questions at all costs section of the male brain, okay? We do not want to talk about our feelings, okay, or any personal questions, right? That's totally true. Can you get an amen from the women in the congregation again? See? Okay. Okay, now there's a big section over here. There's two sections here. This first section is the lame excuses section, Okay. It's a big part of our male brain that we can come up with. We're good at coming up with lame excuses. Okay, yeah. Okay, now, of course, you know, this section here, we had to go here. Physical industry, you can name a lot of different things, but that's a large section of the male brain. You know that. Okay. Down here, though, is the toilet aim. Okay. Now, having sons, and, and they have the upstairs bathroom, and I go up there occasionally, and it is filthy, and I can attest to the fact that their aim is off, big time, okay? And so um, I've learned to sit down when I do that because my wife will point out all the times that I've missed. And so she's like, okay, I just do it that way. And, you know, I learned to keep the seat down and all that, okay? All right. And then, of course, the last section here is the TV remote control addiction. Um, this is totally true. I have mastered the the remote controls for the most part. If I were to give this to my wife, you kids know this. It, how do I turn this on? Where's the power button? It's not as simple as that. She cannot get that. Now, can I get an amen from all the ladies in the congregation about this? This is a pretty accurate assessment of the male brain, right? But the biggest thing I want you to focus on is this ability to multitask and to focus on a single task. Okay, guys, you ready to have some fun? Because there's this part right here, the, the listening to children crying in the middle of the night gland in the male brain Okay, you know, it's, you can't see it, but it's not shown because it's so small and underdeveloped. We don't have the ability to listen to children cry in the middle of the night. And that's why the wives are able to get up and do that, okay? But it's best viewed under a microscope. And if I did hear my children cry in the morning, I did one thing or at night. I turned the baby monitor off and they stopped crying. And it worked. Okay. Ready? The female brain. You guys ready? I didn't say women ready. You guys ready, right? Here's the female brain. There are your driving skills right there, ladies. See how small that is? They're all kind of laughing. You all kind of know this is true as well, okay? Although up to age 25, the highest insurance rates are for the young males, right? Because they tend to be reckless and so on and so forth. All right. The shoes. This is the female brain and the amount of the brain that takes up shoes. I've, I've learned to buy on sale a lot of shoes, okay, just so they learn to, and they're expensive, but I get them at sales or on eBay or whatever, and they last as I wear all these different shoes. And for a male, I'd have a decent amount of shoes, but it pales in comparison to the amount of shoes that my wife has, okay? Men, by showing your hands, do you own less shoes than your wife? Raise your hand. All right. Wives, do you own more shoes than your husbands? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, okay. What'd you say? You hold on your shoes forever. You don't buy new ones because you, you have shoes from the 80s. You have shoes from the 80s. Who would like to see your shoes next week from the 80s? I ain't getting... All right, so send a picture to me. I'll incorporate them in a sermon or something like that. So, But that's the, the shoe section of the female brain. Now, there's the mow the lawn section, okay? Uh, this is for my, uh, my wife, who I've, I don't think she's ever maybe once mowed the lawn. It's a running joke in our family. When I would be driving, I'd see a woman outside mowing the lawn and say, Oh... That makes my heart feel so good. There's a woman mowing the lawn. 
And my wife would look at me and say, in your dreams. Okay, she just didn't grow up mowing lawns. I said, well, you want to ride a lawnmower? No, no, no. So it's a very small section of the woman's brain that, in terms of mowing the lawn. Now look at that. See the difference there between the male and female brain? Look at that, multitasking. It is amazing to me. My wife, remember when we were, were in our early first 10 plus years of our marriage, she could be on the phone talking while making dinner, while watching the kids and directing the kids. I... I I cannot do anything like that at all. But the ability to multitask is, is really a, a wonder of the, the female brain. Can I get an amen from the women from this congregation? Okay, good. This is the realization of wants versus needs. I've noticed that with women and so on. And I want this, and they think it's a need, but no, 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 it's, it's not. You don't need that. Here is the diamonds olfactory, Okay. It's a large section, as you can see, a pretty large section of the female brain. That they, is there any women in here that don't like diamonds? Really? Not really? Okay. I don't tell anybody. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This large section of the brain is a shopping section. Okay, notice that, that it was kind of non-existent in the male brain. We don't shop, by the way. What do men do? We hunt. We're in and out of the grocery store. You don't see men just going around and shopping. You can also put in their impulse shopping, but it's a larger section of the female brain. This is the I told you so gland. It's a big section of the women's brain, right? Right? How many men can sit there and say, yes, my wife has a section of her brain that's called I told you so because she's always telling me I told you so. And she's probably right. Yeah. yeah. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. And what do we do as men? We go to touch the stove. Well, I told you so. Right? I can fix the roof. Right? No, you can't. I should pay somebody. All right. I told you so, gland. Then there's the talk, talk, and more talk part of the female brain. Okay? There we go. <laughs> he had the courage to say, I was waiting. You'll be sleeping alone tonight, Tom, but all right. And Tracy's thinking, I told you so, right? <laughs> this is the focus on a single task. Now, this is hilarious because you see the difference between the male and the female brain here. I can ask my wife to, to just, okay, why don't you just go get ready for bed and I'll take care of everything else. She cannot not clean the kitchen. She's got to clean the kitchen, get it all organized. There's laundry over here that's, that's not folded. Um, this part of the, the TV room is out of order, doesn't align right. So she will be doing all of that. And I'm waiting for her to just simply get ready for bed. Okay? And I've seen the same thing in my mother and in other women as well. But the, it's something about the, the female brain, and it's difficult sometimes to focus on a single task. Okay? Then, of course, we have the last section, and that's the chocolate center of the... How many of uh, you women like chocolate? Yeah, I do too. So it's a large section of the, the female brain. So we can see a funny look at the differences between the male and female brain. But one other footnote here, but the, the put oil in the car and be quiet during the game glands. I've talked about this, yeah. They're only active when the diamonds olfactory has been satisfied or there is a shoe sale, which means they're not at home, right? Now, all this does serve a point in the, the sermon this morning as we get our Bibles out. In Matthew 6.10, we'll be looking at this verse this morning. Okay, but I want everyone to turn to back one chapter. I'm going to talk about one will. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, a few months ago, I don't know if you remember this or not. If you did, God bless you. It makes me feel good as a teacher that you did that. I do remember it. But we studied this passage and learned that the word pure is the Greek word katharos, and it means singleness of heart or mind. Singleness of heart or mind. So the pure in heart are those 
who do not have divided hearts or minds. You with me so far? Remember that? This is why the, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, and theologian, wrote a book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Because purity means a singleness of mind or of heart. This is why James prescribes purifying the heart as a cure for double-mindedness. Turn near the end of your Bibles to James chapter 4. I will wait till you get there, but James chapter 4, we'll look at verses 8 and then verses 4. I want you to see this point and remind us because it's central to this idea of doing the will of the Father. Because His will is done in heaven and His will is to be done on earth. But James chapter 4, verse 8 says this, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So James' prescription for purifying, or purifying the heart is his prescription for the, or the cure for double-mindedness. So double-minded people we see are people that will, you hear me now, two things, not just one thing. And what is purity of heart? Single-mindedness, willing one thing. Double-minded people are willing two things. They're also what we call split-souled, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Now, what does this double-mindedness, this called multitasking, if you want to use that phrase, look like? Well, look at verse 4 of James chapter 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So the double-minded person of verse 8 has a divided will. Between who? Or between what worlds? It's the world and God. You see that? Purity of heart, on the other hand, is to what? You're going to will one thing. A singleness of purpose. A single will. One will. And namely, purity of heart means I'm a complete and full and total allegiance to God. Now we see this, what I call one will mindset in Jesus Christ. Just listen to this. In John chapter 4, he said this. Verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I mean, think about that for a moment. We will be eating some food in a little bit. But my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So doing, in the mind of Jesus, doing the will of God is as important to him as what? Eating, as food. In John six thirty-eight. Jesus said this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So the very reason why he came was to do the will of the Father. Matthew 26, 39 says this, And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So even when unimaginable suffering awaited him, he did not waver in his commitment to do the will of God. In that instance, the will of God meant suffering and pain. He didn't waver. Everything he did, in fact, was centered on the will of God. Think about this. In his words, they centered on the will of God. John twelve forty nine. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me command as to what to say and what to speak. So the very words that he spoke didn't center from his own will. They centered on the will of God. He spoke only what he heard. One will. His actions centered on the will of God. John five nineteen and 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. 
For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Do you want to know the reason why Jesus was able to do all the miraculous things that he did? He, he only did the will of God. If you ask anything in my name, according to my will, it'll be done for you, right? He only did the will of God, and it was God's will to do this here and do that there and so on and so forth. And this is why all that he said and all that he did and all the miraculous things came about, because it was the will of the Father. So we see this perfect picture of surrender and submission to the will of the Father. Not his will, but the Father's will. Even his judgments were according to the will of God. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So, like the male brain, Jesus had a singular focus on doing the will of God. And as we continue our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to get a deeper understanding of what our Lord meant when he said that we should pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's take a moment and talk about what is God's will. Let's answer this question. And we need to know these things because there are basically, to summarize God's will, there are two parts to God's will. There's a sovereign will or the secret will of God, kind of the same thing. It's the will that causes whatever he decrees to come to pass. Okay? So, for example, when you woke up this morning, where was the sun? And it was coming up, right? And where will it be at around 10 o'clock at night? Why is that happening? His sovereign will, he's willing it to happen. It'll come to pass, okay? He talks about the, the rain that he is causing to fall. It does exactly what he says it should do. The trees that are growing in Washington State, young and old, why are they growing? He caused them to grow. Okay, The winds that blow are all directed by him. That's why it says in Isaiah 14, 24 through 27, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. I can't relate to that. We can't relate to that. How many of you have had great plans that have gone nowhere? That's a foreign concept to God. In this case, he says that I will break this Syrian in my land and on my mountain trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is a purpose that I that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Remember last week, I think it was, all the different kingdoms from the Babylonian kingdom, to the Medo-Persia kingdom, to the Greek kingdom, to the Roman kingdom. All caused and directed and predicted by the purpose of God, the will of God. So that's the sovereign will of God. There's a secret will of God as well. It says this in Deuteronomy 29, 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we made you all the words of this law. So the secret counsel of God is his secret. He has chosen not to make it known to us. We don't know what it is. Now, far from being a mark of spirituality, this gives you insight here, the quest for God's secret will, it's unbiblical. It's unwarranted invasion of God's privacy. That's why the Bible takes such a negative view of fortune-telling, necromancy, uh, horoscopes and so on. But the question for us is how do we pray in accordance with his sovereign will? Okay, because it's going to happen, right? God's going to bring it about. How do I even pray according to his sovereign will? 
Well, I just joyously get involved with the, in the anticipation of the accomplishment of his own divine plan. We can pray something like this. Lord, I know someday you're going to come again. And that which I know by faith, I will know by sight. May it be, Lord. So that's the sovereign will, the secret will of God. There's the revealed will or the will of desire. This will have to do with his law and commandments and precepts that he issues to regulate the behavior of his creation. And God's revealed will can be disobeyed. And we see it when we walk out of this building. You know of it in your own life. There are things that God wills that just don't seem to happen. There are desires, but men reject them, sadly. For example, look at 1 Thessalonians 4.3. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. And yet you know within his church, and it seems to be happening more and more re- with more and more regularity, their sexual sin. Leaders in the church falling being exposed. Luke 13, 34. This is sad, but, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And Jesus says to those Jews at that time, and you would not. His desire was for all the Jews, all the Israel to be saved. Did that happen? No. Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And yet we still find people in rebellion to God. Now we find a blending of God's secret will and his revealed will in the life of Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? Yep. Sold into slavery, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, into Egypt. Betrayed again and eventually arises to the, the second highest in the hierarchy of Egypt. And then his brothers who have betrayed him are brought to him according to the dream he had about 13 years earlier in his life. And this is what he says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So here God's revealed will to Joseph's brothers was that they should love him and not sell him into slavery. Right? But God's secret will was that in the disobedience of Joseph's brothers... A greater good will be done when Joseph, having been sold into slavery into Egypt, gained authority over the land and was able to save his entire family. It's only appropriate that we remember the words of Paul in God working out his will in our lives. No matter what the circumstances are, we can have confidence in this. Not knowing all things, but we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. We may not know it in experience now, like Joseph didn't, but later on in life, we very well may. So it's a mystery of how we have an absolutely sovereign God, and yet we have our own will. I understand how that comes together. But I do know that the true mark of spirituality is seen in those seeking to know the revealed will of God. It is surrendering my will to his will and finding out what his will is for me on earth and making that a reality. It is the child of God who meditates on his law day and night. That's how we will know his will. And how do we pray according to to his revealed will, we pray something like this. God, fulfill your purpose in this world. Take every struggle and trial in my life, every pain and anxiety in my life, every sorrow and sickness in my life, and somehow 
Reverse those things to the result of sin and fit them into your eternal plan, O God. There's people in my life and around this world that don't know you. I pray that somehow the gospel will penetrate their hearts. There's one other point about the will of God that I want you to understand. Because we are deceived and we are so self-focused and so comfortable in our Christianity that I noticed this in my early days of Christianity. I've seen it as a, all my years as a pastor. And that is that we are afraid of the will of God. Namely, that God will ask us to do something that we don't want to do. And when I was younger in college and in early years of my ministry, one of the biggest things I dealt with with people was that we're afraid that if I surrender to God, he'll do what? He'll make me a missionary and send me to where? Africa. Okay? You ever had that thought before? And yet, I want to just highlight this, this final point, and that is that Folks, God's will is kind, or it is good. It says it explicitly in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. It says, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Now listen to this. According to the kind intention of his will. So is it a good thing that you were predestined to adoption through Jesus Christ to God the Father personally. Yes, it's a good thing. And it is out of his kindness and his kind will that that came about. You can read on Ephesians, it talks about, again, the kindness of his will. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So God's will is kind, it is good. So that's a little bit about the will of God. Let's talk about how God's will, though, is done in heaven, because that's what the text says, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because that's a question that uh, in the early days of Christianity and going back, you know, thousands of years and so on, the Heidelberg Catechism question asked this, it's question 124, what does the third petition mean? And the third petition is, is thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The answer is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven means Help us and all people, now listen to this, to reject our own wills and to obey your will without any backtalk. That's literally what it says. Think about that. When I am praying, really praying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's really what you're praying. That's what it means. Reject my own will. Obey your will. But no back talk. It also goes on to say, your will alone is good. Help us, one and all, to carry out the work we are called to as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Now, the angels in heaven bring about God's will. How do they do that? Well, it's done in heaven by angels. We know this. Psalm 103 Verses 20 and 21 says this, Bless the Lord, you as angels, mighty in strength, and perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you host, you who serve him, doing his will. So the angels in heaven are doing the will of God. Now, I, I mentioned this before, but John MacArthur did a study of this and found eight words that describe how the angels do the will of God in heaven. If you take some time and think about this, and some of these words I'm going to read to you, these eight words, it's really kind of convicting. But it gives us some insight in how we are to do God's will on earth. Because this is how angels do God's will in heaven. Number one, they do it without wavering. In other words, there's never a discussion. God says, do this, and they do it. They do it completely. I mean, there aren't any other options. Because there's one will. They do it sincerely, and this just speaks to the heart. I mean, they're eager to do the will of the Father. They do it fervently. They're very aggressive in doing God's will. They do it readily. They don't hesitate. Wouldn't it be nice if our children were that way? 
empty the trash, and there's a race to go and empty the trash, right? <laughs> empty the trash. A day later, the trash is still not emptied. See, I'm not God. I all oh, wish I was, but I am not. I don't have the ability of what I purpose doesn't always come about. But the angels do it swiftly. They do his will constantly, and they do it willingly. And this is the key. How many wills are there in heaven? There's one will, right? That will be done on earth as is in heaven. But for a brief time, remember this, there were what? Two wills in heaven. And what happened to that second will? They got kicked out of heaven. Yep. So the angels do God's will because it's the only will there is. So it's without wavering, completely, sincerely, fervently, readily, swiftly, constantly, and willingly. That's how God's will is done in heaven. And all the sermons that we've gotten in the series so far have focused on, on God. And the bottom line yet, or the bottom line in your prayers, obviously, is that God's will is the priority, right? My will is secondary. Because only one will matters, right? And I could summarize all the sermons with this one sentence. And I keep saying this in every sermon, but we really have to get this. That the death of self is the beginning of true prayer. Because it's not about me. And it is hard for us to not focus on self because we live in a world that is all about self. We're bombarded with that message over and over and over again. But that leads to the next question, how do I live out God's will on earth? Well, I want to remind you of this, and we have been going over this as elders in our church, but do you remember this um, diagram? Do you remember that? From three years ago. It came from John Ortberg, who got it from Dallas Willard. It explains, it's in the book Soul Keeping, but it explains kind of the basic human makeup. And I want everyone to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Because I want to answer the question, how is God's will done on earth? And the goal is that it would be done just like the angels do it. Swiftly, perfectly, completely. Okay? Everyone there? I want you to notice the different elements within this verse that are all made up of, of this. This is the, you know, basically you have, have the will, as you can see there. That includes some of our desires and so on. You have the mind, we know what that is. It also includes desires and whatnot. You have the body, we know what that is. And the soul kind of integrates all of this. And you can also think of the soul, you can think of the spirit. But it says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Romans 12, 1 and 2, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you, be able, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay? Now, obviously... Let me show you something here. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now, Paul is speaking to who in Romans? Romans, but Roman what? Believers, because he calls them brothers. Now, how did they become brothers to him? Well, very simply, the gospel was presented to them. They heard it. God did a work in their lives as they were called to him. And they responded in faith, okay? And they put their trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, okay? But it's also because you notice in Paul's letter, he talks about, I have not stopped praying for you ever since I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and 
is always accompanied by, and your love for all the saints. You'll see that phrase a lot. It's faith and love. So in other words, it's not just faith, and that's the problem we deal with today. We offer you a Savior. You can receive him by faith, but the evidence should be there of a changed life. And the overwhelming number one El Presidente (laughs) mark of a believer is what? Love. And it's love for all people. Because the goal of life is to love God and to love others. In fact, if you love others perfectly, then you're loving God. You fulfill all of the commands, right? So he's talking to people that have clearly made a decision for Jesus Christ, and they're backing it up by their lifestyle, their walk, their daily conduct, okay? So they have first now given to God their soul or their spirit. That's the first part. You see that in that picture, right? Now watch this. He then asks you after you do that, because these are built on each other, okay, each of these points, they're continuous. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, there's a soul, by the mercies of God, all that God's done for you, to present what now? Your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So I have a redeemed spirit or a redeemed soul that's obvious by the phrase brothers. I then offer to God a holy body. You see that? It's a holy body. Now, what does that mean? Well, within a body are all of our habits. That's where they, they reside. So if you have bad habits, sinful habits, and we all do, I am working on those, right? And I am offering to God not those bad habits, but what? New habits. A holy body. In other words, if I'm involved in, or I'm a new believer and I've been involved in a sexually immoral relationship, if I'm going to offer God a holy body, what do I do with that sexually immoral relationship? Do you continue it? No, it's over. You stop it. So I offer him a holy body as one example. So I've given him my redeemed spirit or soul. I've offered him a holy body. But that body will only react and live according to what? The mind. Because the mind directs everything. In offering God, by the way, this holy body, it's a spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. And we know the ways of this world. But be transformed. And again, the metamorphosis that takes place, the transformation takes place, how? By the renewal of your mind. So I've got the soul, the spirit, the body, and the mind. Okay? How is the mind... Renewed in a life transformed. There's only one way. This is a practical question. It's not in the text, but you should know it. How is a a life transformed and a mind renewed? It's the Word of God. You put the Word of God in you, which is why it says that the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You need to learn to think differently. Okay? And how will you learn to think differently? Well, one of the things you can do is obviously come to church and hear your pastor speak, for sure. And that's a small fraction, to be honest with you, of how a a mind is transformed, or a life is transformed and a mind is renewed. Your own reading, studying, meditating, filling your life with the Word of God changes the way that you think. You are replacing old habits with good habits, which is why... Memorizing the Word of God helps you to be transformed. And of course, the biggest open secret in the Bible is is that we approach reading a sports page or reading our favorite book with much more passion than we do opening the Word of God and reading the Bible. As a result, you see very little transformation that takes place in the lives of of people in the church, which is why, by the way, if you haven't seen this, it's all over the Christian, American Christianity, 43% of millennials, I mean, they're just flat leaving the church. 
They've been in that entertainment model that the, the experts are showing of entertaining you know, those churches that entertain you and all that and so on, and it is empty. It's not working. And they want something more and real, and so they are leaving, and we know they're leaving. Okay? This is why Francis Chan said this past week, you have to offer them a God that they can know and experience. Something that's real. Something that's authentic. But that goes back to this whole process in Romans 12, 1 and 2, very few people go through this process. We make it easy for you to believe in Jesus Christ and get to heaven because we present a Savior who doesn't have to be your Lord. It's clearly unbiblical. Okay? But you offer him your soul, your redeemed spirit. It doesn't stop there. You've got to go to the next step. You offer a holy body. You offer him a renewed mind. Now watch this. This is how God's will is then done on earth. Because the number one Bible study of all time, and probably will always be, it's not a study on eschatology. That's number two. The number one Bible study, the number one small group, the number one topic that everyone wants to know is, what is God's will for my life? How to discover God's will, right? Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby talked about this, one of the best-selling Christian books of all time. But what do I offer him? I have a redeemed spirit, a holy body, a renewed mind. Now watch this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I told you, God's will is good. You see that? In other words, God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. But the only way that I will be able to test and to discern what is God's will, in other words, the only way you will ever know what is God's will for your life, you got to go through here, here, and here. And so if you come to me and say, well, what should I do, Pastor? What is God's will for me in this situation? Why would I know? It's like being interviewed for being a pastor. One of the questions you get all the time is, what is your five-year plan? You ever hear that before? What is your five-year plan? Let's say that in 2016, that when you were interviewing me, you asked me that question. And I said to you that I would be here for four years, and in the middle of the fourth year, there would be a global pandemic, okay? And we would have to shut churches down. We'd go online, and by 2021, at the end of the fifth year, we would start to regather again. But my plan was to prepare everybody to get up to a point, and then we just would stop. That's my five-year goal. I wouldn't be your pastor, would I, if I said that? I don't know the future. I do know what God's will is for the church, generally speaking. God wants you to know what his will is for you in your life. And the reason why you don't know, if you don't know, is why. You're stuck somewhere in between here. There's an area or two of your lives, and you know what those areas are, that you simply have not surrendered to him. Or, God in his, his mercy, well, and he doesn't do this often because it's to your detriment if he does this and you don't respond properly. But God does reveal his will up to a point. If you keep rejecting his will like Israel did, what happened to them? It wasn't good. So you have areas of your life that... that you're not reading the Bible. You're not meditating the Word of God. Your life isn't being transformed. There's probably areas of your life that you've just withheld from God, okay? But you're a believer, but you can't get quite to here. That's why it says, then when you do all these things, then guess what happens? You're able to test and approve or discern what is the will of God. So really more than anything else, how is God's will done on earth? It's through broken, surrendered, dependent people. It is through those kind of people, not the proud, but the humble, that his will is done in their lives. 
So by offering God once for all my spirit, that's at salvation, I then daily offer him a holy body. And the offering of my holy body is really actually spiritual worship. I also fill my mind with his word. And as I do this, my life is transformed. As my mind is renewed, I start to think differently. And let me give you an example of thinking differently. You're at work with a co-worker who is a constant, difficult person. Before you were a believer, they would, would be difficult to work with and you would respond in a negative way. Or you would engage in gossip with other co-workers about this person because they were just flat-out difficult. A renewed mind stops the gossip and responds in love to that difficult person. Gives them a special gift. Reaches out to them. Moves towards them, not away from them. That's a transformed life. That's different. Here's the thing. When I fill my mind with the word of God, his thoughts become my thoughts. And guess what, folks? I ask you this. Do you have the mind of Christ within you already? Yes, you do. We have the mind of Christ. It's within you. And you can start to claim the mind of Christ. It's only then that I'm able to discern God's will. You see how those are all... They're concentric. They build upon each other. That's how God's will is done on earth. And so when his will is revealed, guess what? I'm ready to surrender my will to his will. And by doing so, I am living out your will be done on earth as in heaven. So in summary, what is God's will? It is sovereign. It is revealed. How is God's will done in heaven? By angels, without wavering, completely, sincerely, fervently, readily, swiftly, constantly, willingly. How do I live out God's will on earth? By my one-time offering of my redeemed spirit at salvation and daily offering God my holy body, renewed mind, and surrendered will. Philip Keller lived in Pakistan as a boy, and we'll close with this story. He was reading Jeremiah 18.2, and he came across a verse that said, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there will cause thee to hear my words. So he got kind of curious about the potter and what lessons the potter had to teach. So he went down to the potter's house in the city in which he lived, and this is what he wrote. He says, In sincerity and earnestness, I asked the old master craftsman to show me every step in the creation of a masterpiece. On his shelves were gleaming goblets and lovely vases and exquisite bowls of breathtaking beauty. Then crooking a bony finger toward me, he led me to a small, dark, closed shed at the back of his shop. When he opened its rickety door, a repulsive, overpowering stench of decaying matter engulfed me. For a moment, I stepped back from the edge of the gaping, dark pit in the floor of the shed. This is where the work begins, he said. And kneeling down beside the black, nauseating hole with his long, thin arm, he reached down in the darkness. His slim, skilled fingers felt around amid the lumpy clay, searching for a fragment of material exactly suited to his task. I had special kind of grasp to the mud, he remarked, and as it rots and decays, its organic content increases the colloidal quality of the clay, and then it sticks together better. Finally, his knowing hands brought up a lump of dark, smelly mud from the horrible pit where the clay had been trampled and mixed by his hard, bony feet. With tremendous impact, the first verse of Psalm 40 came to my heart. He brought me up out of a horrible pit of the miry clay. As carefully as the potter had selected the clay, so God had selected me. Then the great slab of granite cut from the rough rock of the high Hindu Kush mountains behind his home began to whirl quietly. It was operated by a very crude tread-like device that was moved by his feet, very much like an antique sewing machine. As the stone gathered momentum, I was taken to memory in Jeremiah 18.3. Then I went down to the potter's house. 
Behold, he wrought a work on the wheel. And what stood out most to me in my mind at this point was the fact that beside the potter's stool, on either side of him stood two basins of water. Then he goes on to tell how that all the while that the wheel was turning with the clay, he kept drip, dipping his hands in the water, and he would mold the clay, and he would dip them in the water and mold the clay. Never could he mold without the water because it would stick to his hands and would ruin it. So his hands always had to be wet. And he said it was fascinating to see how swiftly but surely the clay responded to the pressure applied to the, those moistened hands. Silently smoothing the form of a graceful goblet began to take shape between his hands. The water was the medium through which the master craftsman's will and wishes were transmitted to the clay. His will was actually being done in earth through the water. And immediately, he says, I thought of the water of the word of God, which is God's agency for doing his will on earth. When God touches my life, he said, he touches me with his word. It is the water of the word that expresses the will of the master and finds fulfillment in fashioning man into his choice. Suddenly, to his astonishment, he knows the wheel stop. Gently, the man reached in and picked out a piece of stone. He began to spin it again, stopped it again, and reached again to pick out a larger piece of stone. And you notice how now that with the tenderness of his hand, he could feel every smooth spot, every stone, every small grain of sand. The two he had taken out were too large. The goblet was marred. So he reached to it and crushed it in his hands. I said to him, oh, that's sad. What will happen to that? Oh, he said, I'll make it into a common finger bowl. It'll never be a goblet. It's too scarred. And he thought again of Jeremiah 18.4. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hands of the potter. Seldom did any lesson come home to me with such tremendous clarity and force. Why was this rare and beautiful masterpiece ruined in the master's hand? Because he ran into resistance. It was a thunderclap bursting in my mind. Why is my father's will, his intention to turn out truly beautiful people, brought to nothing again and again? Because of our resistance. Because of our hardness. Despite his best efforts and endless practice with us, besides the water of the word applied to us, we end up nothing but a finger bowl. The sobering, searching, searing question I had to ask myself in the humble surroundings of that simple potter's shed was this. Am I going to be a piece of fine china or a finger bowl? Is my life going to be a gorgeous goblet fit to hold the fine wine of God's very life from which others can drink and be refreshed? Or am I going to be a crude finger bowl in which passerbys will simply dabble their fingers briefly and then pass on and forget about it? It was one of the most solemn moments of all my life. And I prayed, Father, thy will be done on earth in clay in me as it is in heaven. God wants to do his will in and through you. That's how he works. That's his plan. He wants to make you into that beautiful goblet. But because you resist, you're a finger bowl. And the key question is this. Are you willing to let him do his will in you, the clay of the earth, as it is done in heaven? That's the heart of the prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I want you to simply do this this week. Search your heart and what are some areas of your life that you could submit to his will. I'm going to close with a prayer of John Calvin and then I'll pray for the food and we'll go and enjoy our afternoon of eating. John, John Calvin said this, God remove all the obstinacy of men 
which rises in unceasing rebellion against you and render them gentle and submissive that they may not wish or desire anything but what pleases you and meets your warm approval. Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, now that we know what it means that your will be done on earth as in heaven, really it's an invitation for you to to make us more Christ-like, to take those areas of our lives that are just rough, that are areas of resistance, areas where our will is stronger than your will in our lives. Remove those from us. And through us, may your will be done on earth as it is perfectly done in heaven. And Lord, we pray that you would bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies and we would enjoy our time together. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Now, before we go, we won't close.